Welcome to the Callcast, the northernmost podcast in the world. Thank you for tuning into this podcast series where we throughout eight episodes will give you an insight to the exciting research that goes on at the University Centre in Svalbard, or UNIS as we like to call it. You'll meet professors and students who are passionate about their cold climate research and learn more about the Arctic, both as a field of study, but also as a place people call home. My name is Maria Filippa Rossi and I am your host today. In this episode, we are joined by Dr. Geis Bredveldt, Professor in Environmental Geochemistry, and he's also a department leader of the Technology Department here at UNIS. Geis researches contaminants in soil and groundwater and how they can pose a risk to the environment and our health. And what you're looking specifically at is PFAS, and I have to, um, um, yeah, I have to concentrate here. Per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. What what is PFAS? <laughs> Thank you, Maria. For it's nice to be here. Um, yes, PFAS. That's a, a lot of words, uh, but it's basically it's a soap. That's soap. it's a soap. Uh, only it's a very special soap where where fluorine is is part of the molecule, so that makes it a very special behavior. So it's but it's more than ten thousand different compounds that fall into this group of PFAS. It's an enormous uh, group of compounds you have to look into and how they behave in the environment. But what is it used for? Uh, well, it's used for many things. Ski wax, for instance. The yeah. Norwegians are very famous for skiing. Yeah. And then ski wax is one one application. The other thing is popcorn bags in your microwave oven. So the speciality with this soap is, or, or the PFAS is that it's non-sticking so it's repellent for water and it's repellent for for fat okay so that uh, like um, pizza boxes were also covered with it to to make it resistant so the carton make the carton resistant against uh, fat yeah. so but one of the major applications we have been looking into is this in firefighting foam mm. so they, they call it aqueous film forming foams so then this pfas helps to to cover the fuel with a thin layer of water and closes the fuel for uh, oxygen so it will not take fire or, or it will stop burning. I mean, initially that sounds uh, that sounds good, like a positive thing, but uh, PFAS is nothing but positive. No, no, it is a, the same story all over again. We've been through many environmental contaminants. They started as the, the solution for all your problems. Mm. And then after a while, you find them in the environment and see that it's not the solution. It's actually a big problem. So PFAS, the main problem with PFAS, it's not biodegradable. So it will, it's called forever chemicals. They will not uh, disappear from the environment. Uh, because this bond, this, this fluorocarbon bond is so extremely strong that it's not by any natural process cannot be degraded. How uh, how is it made? It starts with a hydrocarbon, so just a normal hydrocarbon, and then they connect with different processes. They can connect the fluorine to this molecule and making it very, very special. Uh, so so it, there are different processes uh, and different important chemical companies have developed it, and we will not uh, name them, but they have a, a long history and a lot a lot uh, of, of court cases going on about the contaminants they've uh, brought out into their environment. Mm. Because it's taken up in all different structures, humans, nature, how does it impact us? It's a typical story. You start with one compound that's called PFOS. That was the perfect one uh, because it worked perfectly. Um, but then they found it as this is um, sort of accumulating into biota, so in fish, in human tissue and 
And then they thought, well, it's not so healthy to have it uh, accumulating in fish and, and in us. So let's make the molecule a little bit shorter. So then they took a, cut out two uh, carbon atoms. So that's the C6, they call it then. And then it was not regulated anymore because this PFOS was put on the Stockholm Convention list of persistent organic uh, pollutants. And then the, that was prohibited. And then they made it even shorter, C4. So so that's that's the problem that you cannot regulate this compound by compound. You have to sort of look at the group and, and see how can we sort of prevent these, these negative effects for the environment and, and for human health. We're in the Arctic where we already have challenges with global warming. And now this as well, you say that the contaminants accumulate here. Can you say something about the the multi-stress that we actually face? That's a good question, Maria. It's not only these chemicals that stress the ecosystem here. It's a very sensitive ecosystem here in the Arctic, much more more much less redundancy in the ecosystem here than it is on, on more more warmer parts of, of, of Europe or, or the world. So, so that's often single species that are critical and they are stressed by temperature change, by maybe different ocean currents and by weather changes. And this chemical stress is, is on top of that. So that's, um, that's a serious issue. And, and we are presently involved in this from center project clean, which especially looks into this multi-stressor. How can we, um, yeah, reduce the stress on the ecosystem, um, without knowing all the details how every single element works. Because if we want to say we have to research more until we can say something, then it's maybe too late. So so we should take decisions like this ban, which is proposed now, uh, to take down the stress on the ecosystem before, uh, we, yeah, before it's too late. And basically we need to understand that things are hitched together. So if things happen in one part of the world, it will actually, it will have consequences uh, in another and then especially maybe the Arctic. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's, that's scary. If you see they replace a compound in a factory in the Netherlands and you see it a few years later, you can see it in the, in the rainwater on Svalbard. That's scary. Mm. So, so everything is related and, and, and we have to treat the environment as a, as a whole and not single elements that we reduce or, or yeah, manage. It's this comp- ecosystem-based management what we need for the future. What has uh, your research been about? That's an interesting story because I've been working on, on firefighting fields around airports for many years as a PhD student and nobody knew that there was this fluorinated contaminants, the PFAS was there. So we've been taking samples and analyzing them for oil and all kinds of contaminants and then Later on, we came back and we thought there was much more contamination than just the fuel. It was the the firefighting foam that was the main issue. And that was actually transported into the groundwater and and, uh, threatening uh, drinking water resources downstream of the airport. So that was actually the Garden Moon Airport in Oslo. That was the where my research started. And uh, in Svalbard, there has been a lot of writing about it as well because of the practice field around the airport and that has a lot of PFAS in the ground. Can you tell something about that uh, situation? Yeah, yeah, but that's typical like all airports in, in Norway because every airport run by Avinur had his own firefighting training field. And that's was a little bit foam here, a little bit foam there. And it was nice when you have a public um, day to foam the runway and then kids can play in the foam. That's fun. So so there's a lot of contamination at any airport in Norway, basically. So mm. now there's more than 40 registered. And 
Longyearbyen Airport is one of the sites where where they have this uh, contamination at the firefighting field. And to some extent, these contaminants stay in the soil. But of course, when there's a lot of rainwater, they will start washing out and, and run off to the fjord. So we've been seeing runoff here at the airport to the fjord and uptake in fish around the airport. So there are different options what you could do. The main issue is you don't want contact between the contaminants and the environment. So you could isolate it, so cover it and prevent rainwater infiltration. But as far as I know, uh, it's of course a debate between the environmental regulator and, and, and the Avinur authorities. So far, it looks that they are going to dig it up and put it on a barge to the mainland. That sounds expensive. It's expensive. And the question is, what happens on the mainland? So then it will be put in a landfill and the landfill will be covered and it will stay there basically forever. So it's there is not uh, the, the, the perfect solution is not there. So if you could have it all in a in a barrel, you could send it to high temperature incineration somewhere. But it is this soil with a few micrograms of PFAS that's the problem so it's uh, low concentrations over a large area that's the problem you said there were no good uh, alternatives but what what can be done in the future we can't just leave it no no, no that's correct Maria um, there's a lot of research going on and and as I said these compounds are so stable so you need high temperature or very aggressive chemicals to really break them down and that costs a lot of energy and resources to break them down again. So so there's a lot of research going on, but the problem is always now we have spread these compounds in the environment and, and they are very, like we discussed, uh, very low concentrations over large areas. So, um, so if you want to all bring it back to zero, it costs enormous amounts of energy and resources to really remove everything. To, so, so the major risk is that we come into contact with these compounds. So so what we are working on is risk-based remediation so that we say, can we reduce the exposure of people and the environment to these compounds uh, without digging them up, putting them on a barge and a new landfill? Um, so that would be the total environmental sort of footprint of these contaminants. We don't want to increase it even more than it is at present by doing all this uh, intensive remediation techniques with, with high cost and high energy demand. So we've been working on, on can we bind the, these chemicals so that they don't move? So for instance, activated carbon can bind them and then they, they still are in the soil, but they can't move into the groundwater. So then you really chemically isolate the compounds from, from doing harm instead of removing it and, and making big landfills which forever have to be monitored so so that's one thing we look into how can we solve an environmental problem on the most environmental friendly way so not increasing the the, the footprint as i said do you think there is a chemical solution to it i, I think if we think risk-based and if you don't plan to build a kindergarten on top of an old fire training field and you say this area unfortunately we have been contaminating this area we isolate it so there's no physical interaction or no leaching to the environment but then you have to take this area out of normal use and that's that's feasible and that might be a much more sustainable way and and combination of 
some um, binding to, to like activated carbon or other sorbents, you can reduce the load to the environment so that you reduce the risk, uh, even if it's not the zero risk that remains, but it should be able to come to an acceptable level without all these big machines and digging. Dig and dump is not the solution, I think. No. What does it do to humans if they're in, in contact with it or accumulates over time? Yeah, well, that's still under development. So when I started working with this risk assessment for soil and groundwater, we thought this was basically a soap molecule in the early 2000s. We thought this was the, the, the health levels were very high. So that means that you could tolerate a lot before it would be negative. And then over the years, since different publications came out during 2000, we see that this, the, 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 the health limit is going down and down every other year, basically. So initially we thought it was yeah, maybe only the people that get exposed to very high levels, like the, the people working on the ski waxing buses and, and so on, they were exposed. Then we see it also on firefighters themselves. And the latest was that they thought it was uh, interfering with with the fat metabolism. So high cholesterol levels in humans was one concern. But two years ago, they reassessed these data and they say it's even more uh, yeah, toxic basically to how children respond on vaccination. So your immune response is interfered with by these chemicals. So that's serious when we think about how you respond to diseases and how your immune system will work. So, so these levels are getting, getting very low, what we thought uh, would be safe, which means that, for instance, in Holland, then the safety levels are basically back to background levels, what you find in the environment in the Netherlands. Mm. And then in Norway, we hope we still don't have this general spreading of these PFAS all over the country, but many sites we have problems. How is it measured in a laboratory or do you go out and take samples? Yeah, yeah. So, so as I said, it's we talk about very low concentrations like in drink water. So if you don't take care, you contaminate it by the container you use to take your sample. So you should be careful what you use to, to take your sample and with what materials you touch it because this PFAS, it's in your outdoor jacket. Mm. So if you don't take care, then, then you contaminate it uh, uh, indirectly. Um, so So we go out, take samples, and then it's ship to a laboratory where they do it with what they call LCMS, so liquid chromatography. So it's a very advanced uh, yeah, equipment and it's also prone to, of course, interference. You should always be careful. What are you measuring? Mm. Are you having interference from some natural compounds or is it really the chemical you're looking for? And as I said, it's so many different compounds that... The, we started initially with four compounds. Now we are in 32 compounds we're looking for. And the specialists, they can look for many, many more compounds. Uh, but but there are, there's a list of compounds that is mostly used in products we, we, we use around us. Are there any alternatives? You said there were 10,000 different PFAS. What what can we use instead? Well, that's, that's not so very clear at the moment. But for firefighting foam... Um, Avinur already prohibited any fluor use basically in 2011 and that's sort of there are replacements but this firefighting foam that is new um, is maybe a little bit some milliseconds slower than PFAS containing foam 
but there are chemical replacements but in the new regulations they they give the industry a possibility to find replacements for the coming years and uh, and it's not all clear but it's you cannot just change one compound to the other maybe you have to change your product a little bit mm. but like ski wax there's a lot of development how you can do it by a combination of waxes and also mechanical treatment of your skis that you can have this good gliding properties of your skis so so if you don't enforce it prohibition of this compost then the industry is not prone to find solutions so you have to start somewhere and norway has been leading a proposed ban uh, on this quite recently yes in february there they is uh, five countries so norway sweden denmark germany and the netherlands proposed to the the european chemical agency to ban all fluorinated basically pfas compounds mm. And that list, and then how do you define it where the list starts and stops? So they, they it's about 10,000 compounds. They, but they are not individually identified. It's more, if this structure is in your molecule, it's part of the proposed ban. But then you see also different applications. They give different sort of timelines when it all use should be stopped. So for some applications, like you said, it's not so easy to find replacements then they have a longer time horizon to find replacements. Other uses are not necessary at all. Um, so then you can ban it immediately, actually. But I was going to say, if it's dangerous for my health, I can live without the pizza box kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> but it should be out of your pizza box by now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and out your popcorn. Yeah. Do you, do you, as a consumer, do you choose certain products over others since you know the effects of it and are so close to the topic? Yeah, yeah. I always look at like baking paper you use in your oven or, or this cupcake forms. Mm -hmm. It's good. They started with the, the green version a few years ago. Uh, and then it's silicon oil in there, which is not a problem. But the, the, there was PFAS in that because it made this, this paper so nicely fat repellent mm -hmm. and, and not sticking. But you also have it in your cooking ware. Teflon is, of course, a product that is based of of a, it's a polymer, so it's a plastic based of this, um, on these fluor molecules. So if it breaks down, you might expect these small molecules to become available again. So it's better not to, to use this Teflon coating in your, in your cooking equipment. Is there cause for panic? Should we, should we worry? No, I wouldn't say it's panic, but it is a lot of work to be done because still today there, yeah, 100,000 tons of PFAS products used in a, on a world scale. So it is still going out there and it's not going away. So the background values will in the, in the long term rise. Uh, and that's something, of course, we should try to prevent. So we should scale down immediately all unnecessary use. And consumers can maybe aid that by um, yeah. requesting products. Yeah, so there's a nice initiative going on called ChemSec. It is a short for Chemical Secretariat. It's an NGO that is working with more than 100 companies to make a sort of, and they have a search engine where you can see is your product containing PFAS and, and also help companies to replace it. So it's a, there's more and more companies sort of supporting this initiative to, to replace it voluntarily. Because going by the regulations in, in the uh, European Chemical um, Agency, they've proposed it now in February and it takes until 2025 before it will be enforced because now 
all industry can complain about the proposed regulation. So that takes time. So it's much better that you change things voluntarily. That goes much faster. Is there, um, is there a global unity about banning the chemicals? Do, do, do people and companies agree or is there a... Uh, no, there is not. A, I think from a, from an environmental perspective, people see that it's uh, it's not needed to to have these chemicals. There can be good replacements, and some uses should be uh, should be banned. But there's when basically uh, Western companies, uh, Western European companies, stopped producing it. The production was taken over by other companies. So on the world scale, it's still produced, and and. There's still arguments that it should be used in um, in different applications. So it's um, so, but it, it it will be work, as I say, for us and my students. It will be work for for an, an, another generation before this compound is banned. We we see it with similar compounds like PCB, but which was banned in 1982, and we still find it in the Arctic, even if it's yeah been out of production for a long time. It stays there. So we will see the PFOS problem also uh, here in the Arctic. And what's interesting, it's it's not only um, the firefighting foam we use around us, the clothes and the wastewater we produce here in, in Svalbard, it's also coming airborne. So the PFOS that is used in Western Europe is transported here by air uh, currents. Uh, and then it comes into the cold Arctic air and it condensates here. So we have some students and, and colleagues working on what's collected in ice, so by natural transport from Western Europe. And there you see the history of when are these chemicals used and also when are they replaced by alternatives. And then you can say, okay, five years after this compound was replaced by an alternative in the Netherlands, we see it arriving here in the Arctic. So that's that's the scary part, basically, that you see it. You can replace it, but this is a global contaminant that that it spreads all over by air and ocean currents if there is a total ban what will happen will it just become lower concentrations or yeah as far as we know in normally you say it's a very persistent compound when it stays in the environment more than half a year so it's not broken up these compounds have a life expectancy of 10 to 100 years so it all over this old time it will accumulate in the environment and it will dilute by, by of course by spreading around, but if we ban it, it the concentrations will go down that's for sure, but they might accumulate in in ice cores they might acu- accumulate in sediment samples, so the, so it and we hope it will be sort of over time it will reduce um, the, the environmental pressure on on the ecosystem and and us as humans. Thank you so much uh, for the chat. It was uh, good to learn some more about PFAS. We see it a lot in the news, but don't actually maybe understand the the complexity of it and uh, how it all connects. The Coldcast is made by technician Simon Salomonsen-Jelle and uh, myself, Maria Filipparossi. Thank you very much for listening. (laughs) 